continuing a series in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We've been slowly working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians divides up very easily because uh, he usually notes when he's starting a new topic. And in, in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, he says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote. And all of the chapters about marriage, I would say it's about marriage and its alternatives, which we're going to think about in the next few weeks. But because of the subject, though Paul opened up the series by looking at the first paragraph of 1 Corinthians 7, I think we need to spend a couple of weeks understanding marriage from the Bible's perspective because everything that is in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians is built on a concept about marriage that we need to firmly understand before we can go forward. So I'd like to read two passages. First, this one verse and then a few verses from the Gospel of Matthew in which Jesus quoted this verse and speaks about it. So let's begin Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And then Matthew chapter 19 And Pharisees came up to him, that is Jesus, and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have given to us your book. And it's remarkable to think about this verse in Genesis chapter 2 that is then noted throughout the entire Old Testament in various places. It's referred to and, and it's actually quoted by Jesus and by the Apostle Paul because of its central significance. And We pray that you would open our minds to understand what you have revealed to us, and you would help us to seek to build our lives around it, our lives which are filled with so many difficulties and unexpected situations and questions that arise as we seek to apply what you have given to us. We pray that you would help us to frame our lives around these things and to seek that you would be honored above all, and we entrust this to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this week I read that for the first time in almost 50 years, the rate of divorce among Americans has declined. In 2016, that's a a good thing. It also noted that people are less likely to say that divorce is a good option when a couple is having marriage troubles. And that all sounds very good, but there's a flip side to it. There's a reason why divorce has declined, and the reason that has to be taken into account is that the number of people living together has so increased that marriage is not as common as it once was. In fact, 2016 is the first year, we are told, that people entering into marriageable age, more of them, more than 50%, are choosing to live together rather than get married. And, you know, in order to think about divorce and the, the Uh, what it means, you have to start with marriage. If there is no concept of marriage, then divorce is kind of a non-question. And today, we're all aware, marriage is the minority 
option for young people in the U.S. Now, overall, most households are still made up of married people, are, are headed by married people, but I'm saying of those marriageable age, entering into marriage officially in 1916, living together became the primary option. In other words, the idea of marriage as the public lifetime commitment of two people to each other. And I mean a commitment that's regarded as as an agreement not just between them in private, but a commitment that is made officially and is legally binding. That is in the minority. People often call that traditional marriage, but unfortunately in our culture now, the word traditional tends to mean stuffy, antiquated, and outdated. And so I'd have to say I am not particularly concerned with the concept of traditional marriage or traditional parenting or traditional eating or whatever it is you might think about. Too often Christians become viewed as people look back on the good old days. And the good old days were always in the last generation or before that when people lived the way they should. But I want to tell you from the Bible's perspective, that's simply not true. There was only one brief shining moment in human history, the Bible says, and that was recorded in Genesis chapter 2 before the fall into sin. And everything since then, everything that has ever happened in all of recorded history is just another example of the revolving merry-go-round of variations on one theme, and that theme is sin. So to understand marriage and its alternatives... We have to first lay a foundation of what marriage means from the Bible. I'm not going to answer all questions about marriage. I'm not going to talk about divorce this morning. We'll come to that later. I just want to think about marriage itself, how it was designed by God, what God intended to do by means of establishing what we think of as marriage. And the, the idea of marriage is laid down at the end of chapter 2 of Genesis in the verse that I read to you a few minutes ago. Before we consider the implication of this verse and kind of take it apart a little bit, we need to understand how significant it is at this point in the Bible. In verse 22, the end of the second chapter, it's only one verse before, after this before you come to the advent or the entrance of sin into the world. So Genesis 1 and 2 are the only parts of the Bible that describe human beings in our state before sin. What was life like? You may know chapter 1 of Genesis is like a panoramic view of creation. It describes God's creation of the human race in seven creative days, of which the sixth day is the creation of life on this planet, including human life. What happens in chapter 2 is it's another account of creation in which there is a zeroing in on the sixth day specifically, and it expands what happened on that day when God created plant life animal life and human life and placed us on planet earth what happened on that day and it describes that in detail and and uh, there is this point where having made the man and placed him in the garden and given him a function which is to tend it and to keep it to guard it it says next that that god looked at the man and said it was not good for the man to be alone god said i will make him a helper fit for him And what happens next is not what you would expect. You would expect that God, having determined that he needed a helper fit for him, he would go ahead and do that, but he doesn't. What happens is Adam names the animals. And all the animals are called before Adam, and the image is Adam as the king of the earth, 
the vice regent under God's rule, he now shows his power by giving a name to each of the animals. And in the process of doing that, Adam realizes that all the beings on the earth come in pairs. There is a male and a female. And it says that at the end, when it records again this idea, it's not good for the man to be alone, it's now a realization of Adam. Obviously, God knew that. But the whole uh, event of naming the animals was so that Adam would realize there are pairs of everything, pairs made up of two genders, male and female, but there is not another being who is like me. And so we're told that God created Eve out of Adam, brings her to Adam, and then we have in the verse before the one I read, verse 23 in Genesis 2, we have the first poetry that is recorded as being composed by a human being in the Bible. It's an it's a outburst spontaneously, apparently, of praise. And it's an exuberant sense when Eve is brought to Adam and he says, This, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, Isha, because she was taken out of man, Ish. And the words sound alike, and it's meant to be a play on sound. And, and it's this idea, excuse me, that Adam is just overcome with this sense that now he has a partner in life. It's important to note that there is poetry before this recorded in the Bible. Chapter 1 has the first sense that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. That's poetic. But, but the fact is that was composed by Moses under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Many years after the events that he's recording, Moses had drawn together all the information he had, and under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, he wrote down accurately what God wanted us to know about the origin of life on this planet. And there's poetry there, but, but this is the first man. He composes this poetry out of the exuberant sense of this partner has been given to him. And it's important to understand this phrase, I will make him a helper fit for him. Because today, you might think that the word helper means like the hired help. She, she was brought in to clean his house, you know, and make his food, kind of thing. That's not the meaning of the word helper. The word helper is used of God throughout the Psalms. God is our helper, it says, over and over again. It carries the basic meaning. is just the idea of a partner brought along to assist a person in some way. And so the word partner might fit more in our terminology today. And when it says fit for him, it literally means complementary to him. That the two fit together in some unique way in that they share a common humanity... They are the same thing in terms of image of God, and yet they are distinctly different so that they fit together in a certain way. And obviously, that in one sense, the most obvious one, is the unique and intimate relationship of a man and a woman out of which children can be born. It is an image of the fact that they fit together. That's the basic statement of the Bible, this fitness, that is the idea that everything in life is founded on the balancing nature of the two genders, male and female. It's precisely at this point 
after that exuberant outburst of praise that Moses breaks off his narrative. Interpreters note this. Verse 22 is like you would think of it as an editorial comment. Moses is reading to you. You could picture this story of the creation of the world. This is what Adam said. And he looks up and he looks you in the eye and he says, this is why. That's what the word therefore means in this place. This is why. A man leaves his father and mother and is joined or clings, holds fast to his wife, and the two become one flesh. It's because of what God did in the Garden of Eden. That's why it's such a significant verse in the Bible, quoted so many times. It gives the reason, and the reason is by the good intention of the Creator. God designed human life from its very beginning so that there would be a unique relationship between a male and a female individual that we would later call, not in this place, but later become called marriage. So it's not simply because in the dim prehistory of the race, people began to find out that when they had no rules, society didn't work very well and they kept killing each other and so forth. So let's, let's create this, this bond between two people that is inviolable and they belong to each other so that we don't have so many problems in society. It's not just because of the forces of evolution as time went on in the distant and dim past that it was best for the men, people realized, not to be tomcatting around and producing children with all these different women so that the women were left at home taking care of the children while the men had fun. It's not because of that. It's not that society began to frown upon men being so loose and all the responsibilities placed on women. That, that is not the reason why marriage came about. It wasn't an invention of human beings. It was the very intention of the creator from the beginning of the human race when he established life on this passage. And what this verse tells us is that there are certain parameters to the relationship as God designed it. The relationship has certain boundaries within which it makes sense. It's the way God designed it to function, and that's what I want to think about for for a few minutes. Marriage was designed from the beginning to be monogamous, exclusive, heterosexual, and permanent. I'll say it in a different order. Marriage was designed to be heterosexual, monogamous, exclusive, and permanent. There are like four foundation stones at the corners of a building that the whole building is built on, and I want to think about those for a few minutes. Now, marriage was designed, first of all, to be heterosexual. That means other sex, oriented towards the opposite sex. It was to be between a man and a woman. Now, this is found, first of all, in the outburst of praise of Adam. This at last is bone of my bones. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He notes that his his sense of joy was that there was now a partner who was like him but was paired with him, just like there was for all of the other creatures. And in verse 21 or 24, when Moses kind of expounds on that for all generations, when he speaks to us right here, November, January 15th, 2017, he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. It's obvious that he's pairing a man and his wife. The two genders are put together. Now, this is a point most uncomfortable. I actually thought this week, is there a way I could not start with this point? However, it is the basic point of the passage. It's like the starting point of all consideration of marriage is that it is between two people of the opposite sex. 
Now, I realize because of social factors that we have in, in society today that this is not thought to be appropriate. And so Christians, in a very real sense, have become focused on as people who don't accept that, at least the teaching of our book doesn't really encourage us to accept that at all. And it's often thought that this comes because of our exceptional kind of fear or hatred, dislike for homosexuals. And I want to say right at that point, we need to not let, let people uh, assess our inward motives in that way. Even though that's been widely spread, we need to not be people who, who allow people to think that way because there is nothing about our understanding of same-sex marriage that is rooted in dislike or distaste for homosexuality. It is simply that God has said that the two genders are necessary to make up what the Bible considers to be marriage. It's how God designed the human race. Male and female match. They correspond to each other. A human male and a human female are alike each other in very essential characteristics. We are all human beings. We are all the image of God. And at the same time, we are unique in our differences. So any time a man feels, I just don't understand women, or any time a woman feels, I just don't understand men, All we're doing is displaying something God created us to experience in all generations as we go through life because there's something uniquely complementary but different about the two genders. It's very important to note that the Bible does not pick out homosexuality as being uniquely sinful. There are only seven places in the Bible that speak of homosexuality, which out of the vast number of verses in the Bible is a very small number. However, that doesn't mean it's not important. It simply means that it is presented in the Bible as merely one of the many ways in which people can somehow not adapt to God's design for sexuality. Homosexuality is classed with adultery in the book of Leviticus in two different places and then mentioned again in the same class in the New Testament because it's considered that those are simply two different examples of how people might not correspond in their sexual experience to what God originally designed marriage to be. So it's not that we pick it out and we want to talk about it all the time. It is sometimes said, how can you tell someone else who they should love? And that one wounds because none of us want to be known as people that go around telling everyone else how they ought to think and what they ought to do. However, we need to qualify that by saying society always decides what is appropriate for people to do. We still, if someone feels that it's appropriate for him as an adult male to have a relationship with a child, we put such a person in jail. Because we don't allow that. We don't feel that that is an appropriate way to express maleness. And and the same thing is true of other aspects of life. So the first problem is we all have to make decisions about what's appropriate and inappropriate. And we're saying these... This is God's designed way of fashioning human life. Within the boundaries of this, we experience it most fully in the way that God intended. Outside of it, it will cause problems. Now... Another problem we have is that that idea, how can you tell someone whom to love, is all dependent on the meaning of the word love. If love is simply romantic 
affection or attraction to another person, then it probably is true I don't have the right to tell another person whom they should love. But the Bible tells us that love is so much more than that. That regardless of how many times Hollywood perpetuates the idea that physical attraction is all that love is, no matter how much that is put out there, it's simply not a full definition of love, which has to include, from the Bible's perspective, an essential commitment to the well-being of the other person, particularly in relationship with God. I commit to the other person to help him or to help her draw closer to God. And that means that not everything that passes for love can be applauded. So, you know, there's much that could be said about this. And it's like, I I don't want to be known as the person who picks out this topic and speaks about it. But this one is on the surface. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The Bible, at its very foundation, lays one cornerstone of the relationship God has given to us called marriage. It is to be heterosexual. It involves the combination of two equal but very distinct and different people with one another. They're complementary. The second thing that comes from the passage is it is not only designed to be heterosexual, but also monogamous. Monogamous means one man married to one woman, at least at a time. Uh, It's the opposite of polygamy, which is one man with many wives, and it's also the opposite of polyandry, which is the marriage of one woman with many husbands. Um, Now, this is borne out simply by the fact that the words are singular. A man shall leave his father and his mother, singular, and hold fast to his wife. So God designed marriage to be a committed relationship between only two people, a male and a female, And she might say, well, isn't there polygamy in the Bible? And yes, it is true. There are examples of people having many wives in the Bible. In the Old Testament, it records in a number of places, particularly the kings of Israel, that they often had many wives. Understand that the Bible records many things, particularly in the Old Testament, that it doesn't necessarily affirm as being good. It's just recording this is what happened. Many places like that. There are some places where it not only records it, but it says this was wrong, but many places where it doesn't tell you exactly how to feel about it because you're expected from earlier understanding of things written to be able to assess whether it was wrong, and polygamy is one of those. Polygamy grew out of, in the ancient Near East, the idea that a very rich and powerful man showed his power in outward forms by having many wives. And this would have been true, particularly of the most powerful people in society, which were the rulers of society. So they would make alliances with other nations and clans and kingdoms and cities, and they would marry their daughters, and having many wives was a sign of power. And it seems that under the Old Testament, at least for a time, God put up with that situation, allowed that to happen, but it wasn't his intention. And we know it wasn't his intention because from the beginning it said, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. So it was meant to be a monogamous relationship. And then thirdly, marriage is designed to be exclusive. The Bible presents marriage as being an exclusive relationship. Now, on one level, exclusive in, uh, between a man and a woman is the same as monogamous, but it is different in this way. A person could consider himself or herself married to one person of the opposite sex and yet have relationships with many other partners outside of marriage. And obviously that's common in some 
parts of society for that to happen. It's a mentality that seems to be very common among the rich and famous in our country, but it's presented in Scripture as not being God's design that a person would have a monogamous relationship with one person of the opposite sex but be free to have many partners outside of marriage. We know this in part because of the words, a man shall leave his father and his mother. Now, it's interesting to stop. Most people don't stop themselves and ask, well, why does it say it exactly that way? It's customary in almost all parts of the world, and this is changing to some degree, but historically it's always been true that a woman has left her family, clan, and tribe and joined into the family of her spouse. That, that is true in all aspects of every culture that's ever been found, every major culture in the world. And we have the remnants of that today and that a woman usually, at least customarily, takes a man's name. That is changing also as well, but uh, however that is, we understand that customarily a woman left her family and joined the family of her husband, and yet this doesn't say that. This says the man shall leave his father and his mother. And, And what's interesting is what we might think of as traditional societies, that is not the case. A man does not leave his parents. You know, many of us have been to Albania. We have sister churches there. And among the traditional Albanian culture, uh, uh, husband and wife often would move into the very household of his parents. And they would live there and take care of the parents until they died. Or if they lived uh, in a farm, they would build a house right next to their parents. And the farm would be farmed now by the original parents and the children that were there married and having children. This is how society has worked for a long time. And yet this verse says, this ancient verse, a man shall leave his father and mother. Even though in the culture of the time that didn't always happen, and it obviously underlines that this is an important kind of leaving that isn't necessarily physical. And it tells us that what happens when two people get married in God's design is that there is a leaving of parents, even if they live in the same household. The married couple forms a new, distinct family with all of the privileges and responsibilities that an individual family has, whether or not they live in proximity to other members of the family, they are distinct and new. That's important to understand. It's an exclusive part of what marriage is. Those of us who have raised children and we've married off children, we have to learn, usually through some difficult experience, that you have to let go. I mean, the fact is they have to make decisions on their own. And sometimes we say things, not not even intentionally, that imply that there's some obligation to us or they ought to continue to do something the way we did it because, after all, we're your parents, you know. That works when they're four. It doesn't work after they get married. And we know that in part because it says a man shall leave his parents and hold fast to his wife. At the beginning, in... God's design for marriage, it involves an essential breaking of former relationships of dependence and the forming of a new relationship between a husband and wife, a new family unit. The basis of society is formed by the marriage of a man and a woman. Establishment of a home that's separate but hopefully respectful of and involved with the previous home that they came, homes that they came out of. But that's basic to marriage. And, of course, the exclusive relationship of marriage goes even deeper than this. It is meant to say that I 
belong to my wife and she belongs to me in some sense that we share a heart level experience that is not always shared with other people. Now, I have many relationships with people that I love and I'm close to, both men and women here at the wor- where I work at church and with people in the church family. There are times when I might share something I'm struggling with and so forth, but what I've developed or I've tried to develop through life is, is this very deep commitment that says I will not share with another person, male or female, something that I am unwilling or not sharing with my wife. Now, if I'm open with her and she's aware of all those things going on, I feel free to share many things with people if I choose to, but there is an exclusivity about the relationship that needs to be primary first before everything else is experienced. Marriage was designed to be exclusive, and lastly, this verse tells us marriage was designed by God to be permanent. That is found basically in the word that is translated, hold fast. Man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The word means to stick like glue. It, it, it actually means something like we would, the old King James word that is here, cleave. The man will cleave to his wife, which carries the idea of melding two things. Like if you heat plastic and you put it together as, as when you uh, do plastic welding, what actually happens is the molecules of each piece of plastic inhere with the others, and the, the, the two things become connected to each other in a way that's almost impossible to separate, and that's the idea that is behind marriage. The man shall stick to his wife and vice versa. It's a word that is used later in the law by Moses to talk about how should we, God's people, feel and act towards him. So it says, for example, in Deuteronomy 10, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. In other words, God desires from us the corresponding covenant faithfulness that he expresses towards us by keeping us preserving us, providing for us, seeking continually to draw us to himself in the same way he desires that we would respond to him by holding fast to him in faithfulness. And that's the idea behind it. It's this word used here more than any other that explains why this verse is the foundation of what we call marriage. And marriage is, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, a covenant. That is, marriage involves a public agreement to do these things. And that's really contained in the word hold fast. Because it's not simply two people saying, I'm going to stay with you as long as it's nice and comfortable and you're good and young and pretty and all of those things. It's not that. It's two people saying before someone else who acknowledges it, before society, in a sense, who is represented by whoever else is there, I will do these things to you. It's that kind of commitment, a public commitment, an open commitment made before God, before other people to be committed to this heterosexual, monogamous, exclusive, and intentionally permanent relationship. Now, this idea of permanence is is so important that I just want you to note Jesus' words about it. I read the passage a few minutes ago. It's pretty self-explanatory, but this passage in Matthew 19 is so key that we're going to look at it next week because it has a lot more to say than I'm noting right now. Jesus talks about things that might 
hinder or break the marriage covenant here. But before he gets into that, he makes the statement that in and of itself is so clear, the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? There was a conflict between two schools of thought. Shammai and Hillel represented these two ideas about marriage and divorce, and they were asking him for his opinion. And here's how Jesus answers it. He said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Whatever Jesus goes on to say, which we'll look at next week, whatever 1 Corinthians 7 goes on to say about alternatives to marriage, singleness and divorce and so forth, whatever it has to say, it has to be founded on this basic word of God in Genesis 2 and Jesus' affirmation of it right here that God designed marriage to be permanent. He designed it to be the permanent, exclusive, monogamous, and heterosexual relationship between two people. The Bible, in fact, is one massive illustration of marriage. In the Old Testament, the New Testament, there is this image used that we sang about this morning, and that is the image of God being married to his people. And that that whole idea is unfolded in the love story that the Bible presents, which which really, though marriage is actually referred to on very few pages of the Bible, in fact, it's the illustration that is carried throughout the whole Bible, and that is it's about, in detail, the wooing and the winning and the cleansing and the rebellion and the winning back and the strong love and the gentle submission of God of people to God and God's calling them to himself. I mean, that's what the whole story is about. And that's why there's another passage we won't be looking at. I just want to note it in closing. And it's the other time that this word from Genesis 2 is quoted in the New Testament. It's quoted by the Apostle Paul. It happens in Ephesians chapter 5. It's a passage where the only passage in the Bible which gives some detail about the actual responsibilities of a husband and wife. It details what that looks like in Ephesians chapter 5. And after talking in detail about how a wife should relate to her husband and a husband should relate to his wife and so forth, he quotes, he comes to the end by quoting this key verse, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he adds these words. This is a profound mystery. But... I'm talking about Christ and the church. And when you read it, you realize, wait a minute, he, did, he wasn't talking about Christ and the church. He was talking about the husband and wife relationship. And yet he ends by saying, you know, all of this really in reality is about Christ and the church. What he means is that marriage at its very best is meant to be a taste of the intimacy and, and the love and the feeling of being cherished and cared for and wounded and healed and enraptured and loved by the eternal God. That's what it, it's meant to be a picture of. It's meant to awaken in us the sense that that's what we really want. And marriage offers at times, at its best, it offers a taste of that, fleeting though it might be. 
And at its very worst, marriage is an experience of disappointment that is meant to evoke inside of us a sense of longing to have what it is we feel we're missing. In other words, marriage is designed by God to be the chief, primary way that he, he wounds us and he heals us and he gives us the sense of what I really want is to be joined to God. That's God's purpose for marriage. Everything else has to be based on that. Marriage was designed to be heterosexual, monogamous, exclusive, and permanent. Let's pray. Again, Father, thank you so much for your book. Help us to see that there are places like this in which you have spoken with such clarity that we are able to, in fact, stake our lives on them, as some of us have done, who, maybe without much knowledge at times, we entered into marriage, and we experienced its highs and its lows, its difficulties and its pain, and in all of that experience, we're able to say, we were drawn closer to you. And we want that to be our experience, and we pray that you would use it that way in our lives and make us the kind of church in which that might be experienced. And we pray this in Jesus' name.